Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campsite Media, this is Infamous. I'm Natalie Robomed. And I'm Vanessa Gregoriatis. And this week, we've got a very special and fun treat for you in your feeds. We are revisiting an early episode all about Tori Birch. That's right. She's the golden girl of fashion and has been for many years. She was maybe briefly somewhat unpopular and now is very much on top again. This is a really fun story that we did, and it's a fantastic Shakespearean story about revenge, all about Tory Burch and her ex-husband, Chris Burch, who were once this kind of fantastic fashion power couple. That's right. I love the concept of a power couple. Two people who are accomplished and influential and successful and their relationship is so perfect and their outside life outside the home is so perfect but in reality it's not (laughs) right i mean it's this idea of two plus two equals five in the best way that like your powers combined equal something greater than the two of you alone and i think there have been some really famous power couples throughout history i mean who are your favorite power couples well there's of course george clooney and amal Victoria and David Beckham, Beyonce and Jay-Z, and their relationship and their ups and downs and the way Beyonce talks about them is pretty fascinating. But there's also power couples where it's also a horribly toxic relationship, like Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, Elizabeth Taylor and everybody. (laughs) Right. Where you sort of learn later, oh, that looked so good, but it wasn't. One person was actually controlling the other behind the scenes. And I mean, you never really know what's going on behind the scenes. In anybody's relationship, ever. (laughs) Let alone your own. (laughs) Although I do have to say, my tell is when people post tons of Instagram photos of their spouse or their partner being like really cute and doing amazing things. I'm always like, come on. So so things are going badly, right? Yeah, the lady doth protest too much, right? I mean, I think part of what we're saying is that it's hard enough to be in a relationship, let alone one where you're working with the other person. But that's the case with Chris and Tori Birch. They work together. Correct. And so you had Tori, who was on the Time 100 list of most influential people. And then in this episode, you're going to meet her husband, Chris, 
or her ex-husband now, who's a little wilder. Yeah, they were really opposites attract, right? Which is true. That is true. Opposites do attract. But you know what opposites don't do well? Work together. So (laughs) this just becomes a very complicated stew of marriage and merged families and a fashion brand that's worth, you know, at its height, $3.8 billion. So this is the story of what happens when a power couple turns toxic. Okay, so you've spent a lot of time by now listening to my disembodied voice. But this voice is actually located in an office in Manhattan's Soho neighborhood. Now, you may or may not know this, but this is the city's high-end shopping district. There used to be a lot of artists around here living in lofts, and now there's a lot of Chanel. Our podcast office is on the fourth floor, and in it, I have this teeny tiny window that looks out on the backside of a boutique. Once upon a time, something very strange happened at that boutique, particularly in 2011, as it was opening. That day, a slight woman with a furrowed brow stood at its door. Her name is Tori Birch, and she is the most successful female fashion designer in America today. And she had heard that this store looked a lot like her own stores. Tori pulls on the handle of a green lacquer door and enters. Perhaps she sees a big stack of sweaters. There's green velvet curtains, gold trim, little nesting stools, gold logos on everything, and lots of velvet. To be honest, this whole place sort of looks like Emilio Pucci vomited in Louis XVI's Versailles and then turned it into the Gap. I'm sorry to be bitchy, but this is a story about fashion, and you're almost obligated to be bitchy. Okay, so there Tori is in the store. But there is something deeply awry. Tori looks around, and perhaps she thinks, Oh my god, this is both my store and not my store. Her head begins to spin. It's almost like she's in an actor's nightmare. You know, going out on stage and then everybody seeing you naked. For a fashion designer, the nightmare is putting out a hit fashion line and then being copied. So who had done this to Tori? Was it a mean, Devil Wears Prada-esque rival? Well, just wait until you hear what happened and how this case of fashion copycat turned into a strange battle of revenge. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Infamous. I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. I'm Gabe Sherman, and this is part one of a three-part series, Retail Revenge. So, Vanessa, who is Tori Birch? So she's a fashion designer, um, one of the biggest designers of the 21st century. She's probably the biggest female fashion designer in Gen X, right, or millennials or anything like that. Like, I mean, most of the other big female fashion designers are like uh, Donna Karen, Donatella Versace. I mean, these people are ancient now. So Tori and Chris Birch didn't talk for this podcast, but they did give a statement, and I'm going to read that later on. So 
Vanessa, I, <laughs> I live in New York. I see Tory Burch stores around New York. I have friends who buy their clothes. I remember reading in the, in the tabloid she dated Lance Armstrong, if I'm correct. That's correct. But like, why should I care, you know, beyond the the tabloid headlines about Tory Burch? Other than dating Lance Armstrong? I mean, that in itself is fascinating. Um <laughs> I mean, look, this isn't really a fashion story. It's much more a revenge story. And I think, you know, I've read a lot of your writing and you seem to like stories about revenge. Well, I mean, it's it's Shakespearean, right? It's one of the primal motivations. You know, we like to think that people are driven by their uh, their better angels, but human nature is what it is. People want to fucking get back at people. So <laughs> it's a uh, it's a great engine for a story. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, so let's start off by talking about what Tori Birch is all about. Her clothes have always exuded East Coast old money. They're tunics, tennis skirts, tidy cardigans that are just perfect for throwing over a neat tailored dress. When you summer as a verb, this is your wardrobe. And now Tori Birch LLC is also an extension of Tory Burch, the person. I wanted to look through a luxury lens, but actually surprise our customer with what we were able to give them. Just beautifully made things. The way she talks is so interesting to me. It's Valley Girl by way of the Mayflower. She's slender, wears her blonde hair in a page boy haircut. Just very wash and go. One thing my mother said to me is emotion gets you nowhere. And <laughs> she's absolutely right. Now. Fashion is a snotty business, right? The double snaps, the one-liners. Like Naomi Campbell famously saying, you better check your lipstick before you come and talk to me. Or Coco Chanel advising women to dress like you're going to meet your worst enemy. On the other hand, the New York Times once called Tory, and I'm quoting, perfectly perfect. What kind of woman gets described that way? Pretty, not sexy, practical and pragmatic, who is maybe a little basic, but super high-end basic. She's not rebellious, but she's also not pumpkin spice latte. She's macchiato with a dollop of foam. She's a sporty, preppy wasp, and never mind that she's half-Jewish. Her upbringing intrigued a lot of people who came to know her later. You know, was she, in fact, the daughter of very wealthy people? Or alternatively, did this woman really live in a in a simple country home? What was it with Tory Burch? Who, who really was she? That's Michael Schneerson. He's an author and a Vanity Fair contributing editor for 30 years. Michael did the first meaningful story on Tori Birch. In 2007, he went to the house where she grew up. Tori had grown up in a kind of rural stretch of the main line in Philadelphia. That's the geographic marker for the city's upper class. It's a train line. It's a series of stops that were quite large homes that got a little smaller as the train kept going further and further away from Philadelphia. We drove in a car together. Someone drove us, I should say. And uh, that itself was kind of gutsy of, of Tori. I mean, it was a good 90 minutes. We were sitting in a car. She was sort of at my mercy. The pair chatted as they were chauffeured through New Jersey into Pennsylvania, and gradually the houses became fewer and further between. They turned up a long driveway, greenery on both sides, and pulled up to a large white Georgian home. Of course, it had pillars. Her house is really kind of a right-in-between country house. It was a good size, certainly not a mansion. That's not to say that Tori wasn't well-to-do. There were, as I recall, two in staff, as they say. It was almost out of the antebellum South. 
When Michael got inside, he was greeted by Tori's mother, Riva. She had dark, short hair, a very charming manner about her. She was wearing a pair of little flat shoes that had the, the distinctive double T Tory Burch logo on them. There I was chatting away with the, the namesake of the soon-to-be-famous Riva Flats. <laughs> so anyway, she gave me a little tour. Every year, Riva and her husband would board a cruise destined for Europe, and they would travel for six weeks. So the house was filled with exotic objects from their travels. And every year they came back with a bunch of clothes that Riva had, had bought in all ports of Europe. So she led me up the stairs to the attic and opened the door. And there were all these racks of clothes all under plastic sheathing, you know. And I mean, there were literally hundreds of dresses there. The clothes exuded a certain silver screen elegance. Simple, luxurious, and clearly expensive. They looked like they could be worn by Audrey Hepburn or Grace Kelly. These designs that were wrapped in plastic were mined for inspiration by adult Tori. But as a kid, she wasn't even interested. I don't think I had a dress on until my senior prom. (laughs) Instead of dressing up in her mother's pearls, she spent her days outdoors on her family's 30-acre estate. She was a tomboy. She loved sports. I grew up with three brothers. I, I was playing tennis and lived basically outside in a tree. She told me there was a swing tied to one of the big old trees on the property. And she spent just hours and hours on that tree swing. She was perfectly happy to be alone. Not that she often was. By all accounts, Tori was very popular. She went to a fancy prep school. She was captain of the varsity tennis team. And when she graduated, she went to an Ivy League college, the University of Pennsylvania. She was in the same sorority I was in. That's Justine Harmon, who profiled Tori for Glamour and also pledged Kappa Alpha Theta at UPenn years earlier. She wasn't there at the same time as Tori, but Tori's reputation had stuck around. I was only in it for a year and a half. Wasn't my scene. (laughs) It was very much Tori's scene. She would wear something, and then six girls would be wearing it the next night at a sorority party. Tori had a style that friends referred to as Tori wear. Half preppy, half jock, or what they dubbed proc. She was cool. She was very firmly grounded in where she came from. She clearly knew exactly what she thought was cool, and that conviction was palpable. But being cool would not be enough to combat an alleged billion-dollar copycat of her business. For that, she would need that steely wasp resolve and a little bit of fashion bitchiness. More after the break. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds. And they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. 
Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. Rocketmoney.com infamous. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. So, Tori Burch, the wasp from the main line, was a very cool girl. And it was no surprise that she started working in New York fashion when she graduated college. In the 90s, that's what cool girls did. As one of her first gigs, she got a job with a minimalist fashion revolutionary. Here's Tori talking about him much later. Zorin was this incredible designer. An eccentric, known for his minimalism. And my mom wore his clothing, so she made the introduction, and I called him, and he said, you could have a job if you start in a week. And so I graduated from college, and then a week later, I was living in New York City. Next, she got another very silly job. She was writing the tags, perhaps on cashmere sweaters, for Ralph Lauren. She was crafting meticulous sentences, I'd imagine, about weight and heft and how very, very soft they were. So she was trying on a lot of sweaters. And she was also trying on a lot of different men. But she was on the market when she started to work at Vera Wang. She'd taken a job there doing publicity. Wedding dress day! Vera Wang, America's favorite wedding dress designer. Here she met a special someone who had offices in the same building. Chris Birch. Chris was a businessman with charismatic whimsy. He considered himself a visionary. It comes out of when you're a little boy and you come home and it's the end of the year and the cherries are on the trees. And you're thinking about, you have a full summer ahead of you. What can you create? So for me, all the investments or businesses that I started have come out of some kind of dream. Like Tori, Chris also came from a waspy upbringing, but he was distinctly flashier. He loves statement loafers, the kind that spell out things like heart across the toes. Like one says H-E, the other shoe says A-R-T. He was also super into making money and waving it around. Like some people have a hero, Steve Jobs. But my comic book figure, Richie Rich, was kind of like my hero because, look, he had a gold pool. He had a ton of money. He could do whatever he wanted. 
Chris got his start with a clothing company called Eagle's Eye, and it was a big success. He co-founded it in 1981 with his brother, and his dad had co-signed a loan for them. They sold sweaters covered in preppy insignia. I'm talking teddy bears, teapots, mallards, the type of stuff that people wore back in the 80s, sort of unironically. Chris manufactured these sweaters for cheap in Hong Kong, and then he sold them at a big markup. It was a good business. And at the time he'd met Tori, Chris and his brother had sold most of their stake in Eagle's Eye for $60 million. He was moneyed and divorced. In other words, he was perhaps the perfect match for ambitious young Tori. And what she was cute as a, a button. And mm-hmm. we started to talk. And within a very short period of time, I said, that girl's fun, really cute. Sorry for the uh, quality of that recording, but it's very old. And then we had a weekend at my house. This is from my perspective. And my girls, who were really young, loved her. And she was playing tennis with them, and she was fun. And it just kind of snuck up on me. In 1996, they married. There was no prenup. They were building a life together. Who needs a prenup? And they're wasps, right? I mean, wasps don't like to talk about controversial things. Tori quickly had twins and then another son. So if you're keeping count, she and Chris had six kids. It was a real Brady Bunch over there. Chris, meanwhile, kept making money. We started a company called Internet Capital Group, and that company went from zero to five billion. Sounds like a company that would have crashed in 2000, right? But Chris says he got out in time. I took all that capital and I invested in some of the coolest companies in the world. And... uh, Boss Water, um, Jawbone and Jambox. I've been really fortunate to be kind of in like in the in the mix. Tori and Chris became a staple on the New York social scene. There's a saying, you know, there are some people who will go to the opening of an envelope. Now they weren't quite that, but they were definitely out and about. Except Tori was not content to just be a young trophy wife on Chris's arm, doing her exercise classes, sitting on boards she started to think that she might want to have a business of her own. And Chris was happy to help. I said, Tori, I'm going to put up so much money. If we're going to do this business, we're going to do it right. More after the break. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. 
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organisation called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. This is Infamous from Campside Media. To finance Tory Burch LLC, Chris put up the initial investment, and he says that he raised even more money from their network of wealthy friends. In any case, Tory's little business was supercharged with cash. So now it's 2003. And let's picture this. Tori's at home, working on designs for her new brand. I worked out of my apartment for the first two years. I had uh, three boys and three stepdaughters that were all quite young, running around. If you're imagining some sort of loft apartment, like the shirtwaist factory that went up in flames because there's a million people working in a sweatshop, no, that's not what was going on here. Tori was at her home, a 9,000-square-foot palace. Three combined suites at the Pierre Hotel on the Upper East Side. That's a five-star hotel on the southeastern corner of Central Park, which has sweeping views of the green treetops. And then you have Tori, the Eloise, sitting in her kitchen, sketching out ideas on a notepad. There's a clothing rack that's perhaps parked by the kitchen island. Maybe Tori looks at the drapes of fabric hanging in front of her. They are the chic pieces that she ignored as a kid from her mother Riva's closet and attic. What if she takes these chic pieces and she combines them with her own wardrobe? Crop jackets with harsh boxy shoulders, soft cardigans. Let's put these two things together. I thought we could really have an interesting concept if we took this idea of a luxury lifestyle brand but made it more accessible. Now she just had to start selling clothes. This space is about me. Tori opened her store. She was primed to be the next Donna Karen or Diane von Furstenberg. People wanted to hear about Tori. They wanted to be Tori. Okay, now it's three years later, 2006, Manhattan, New York, 9 a.m. The morning commute is in full swing all across the city. Working women are coming out of the subway and they're holding little macchiatos with foam in their manicured hands and they're rushing to their desks. Maybe they're wearing trench coats, pencil skirts, sensible J. Crew slacks. But peeking out from underneath all these hems were the exact same pair of ballet flats. It was like a shoe every single person had. Justine Harmon, who we talked to earlier, saw these shoes everywhere. They were in different colors of leather. They looked almost like little socks, except for one very ornate difference. Right on the toes, there was a big piece of gold. And on that gold were carved two T's mirrored back to back. It's like a gold embossed family crest almost. It, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's probably the size of a silver dollar, and it reflects the light, and it'll take your eyes right out. Despite the silver dollar-sized piece of gold on the toe, these ballet flats were otherwise lightweight and small enough to fit into your handbag. 
really great for a girl on the go. You know, you pack in two little condom-sized shoes and off you go. I wore the shit out of those shoes. I thought they ruled. These were the Tory Burch Riva Flats. She'd named them after her mom. They were not a pair of sky-high heels that you would keep at your desk. They were sensible, comfortable, versatile. You could wear them to the office and to brunch and still look put together. They were the perfect manifestation of Tory's high-end sporty and also preppy aesthetic. And they were everywhere. Even my mom had those ballet flats. She had the orange ones. Very few things sort of shifted everyone's attention like those shoes did. It was a major, major thing. I haven't worn a shoe like that like before, and I haven't worn one since. Um, but in the years like 2006, maybe to 2009, they were all the rage. Let's be clear. Ballet flats were not a new idea. Chanel pioneered them in the 50s. Jackie O and Audrey Hepburn popularized them. And by the 2000s, Marc Jacobs was selling a $300 pair of ballet flats. But in this case, everybody wanted those Tory Burch Riva flats, mostly because of one important person's imprimatur. Now, you could call this person the original influencer. New York style setter Tory Burch is being hailed as the next big thing in fashion. Oprah Winfrey. Again, it's great for bo- different body types. Oh, very nice. Thank Start you. Start with a pair of jeans. Very nice. Oprah, one of Tory's biggest fans, putting her products on her latest favorite things list. It's hard to define how much she helped us. The next day we had 8 million hits on our website. The Oprah effect is very real. When those Riva flats went on sale in 2006, almost 200 bucks a pop, they sold like hotcakes. She moved more than 250,000 pairs in the first two years. That's nearly $49 million. Forget penny loafers. The Riva flats were minting millions. So the Birch business was exploding. However, the Birch marriage was imploding. Tori Birch to me is like one of the unknowable characters. She's been this kind of like perfectly imperfect, or really, I think the Times said at one point, perfectly perfect human being forever. More about this conflict and what it has to do with a copycat of her store on the next episode of Infamous. She was just this glossy, lacquered human being. He was like Linus with like lint trailing off of him. They were very different. Well, the Sea Wonder logo looked a lot like the Tory Burch logo. Most products are meant for women because they want to be noticed and they want to be told they're pretty. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.